You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In some respects, the first of the modernists in chronological terms was a French layman by the name of Maurice Blondel. Blondel, in the early 1890s, had done a, a doctoral dissertation which he published that was called simply Action. And it was a book that in some respects was very difficult to understand. And in fact, theologians and philosophers are still debating to this very day what exactly Blondel may have meant. He was not part of the mainstream of the modernist movement. He remained himself to some degree aloof. And there's some disagreement as to whether or not he fell under the condemnation of modernism that occurred later. Blondel begins with the belief that experience has taught us that there is a natural longing for God, that human nature in and of itself is incomplete and it longs for uh, the divine. Hence, the affinity for God is not in and of itself supernatural, but is in fact part of human nature. But pure human striving uh, is not sufficient according to Blondell, you will not find God simply by your own effort, by your own intellectual search. But everywhere in nature, everywhere in existence, Blondell says, there is what he calls transcendence. Now transcendence is a key word in a great deal of modern uh, religious thought across a wide spectrum of positions, a word you won't find used all that much in earlier times. And as, of course, the word transcendence indicates, it means getting beyond, going above. Is there some dimension of existence which is higher than that of our ordinary mundane experience? And uh, Blondell certainly thought there was. And as he said, these intimations of transcendence were to be found everywhere. He sometimes put it, the supernatural is to be found in the natural. And this could be in terms of something like perhaps the beauty of nature, or perhaps the beauty of art, or in terms of the depths and complexity of the human personality, or in a phenomena like love. There were innumerable ways in which the human person is taken beyond itself to a higher level of existence. Blondel was, of course, as a Frenchman, a Catholic, and uh, he was in fact devoted to the church, and he believed that the Catholic tradition was extremely rich in terms of making available to people these possibilities of transcendence. But he emphasized very strongly what he called the lived tradition. He thought that the tendency in church history, at least in modern times, 
had been to emphasize the tradition as essentially a set of doctrinal statements. So if you wanted to know what the Catholic tradition was, uh, you looked at, for example, the decrees of the great ecumenical councils, and you could state this tradition verbally. And an application or, or a manifestation of tradition would have been, in 1854, Pope Pius IX's definition, the dogma of, of the Immaculate Conception, which states verbally, Mary had been conceived without sin. What Blondell meant by lived tradition was that the entire life of the church is itself a tradition, so that the tradition is carried forward through the liturgy, through devotions, through religious art, through spiritual writings, through the lives of individual people. All of this is the tradition, and one does not understand the tradition uh, without understanding its fullness. Now, uh, in many ways, there's nothing objectionable about any of this, but there are problems of interpretation, which I'll mention in a little bit. Blondell referred to the church as the holy community. And the church is a community of people living or attempting to live in accordance with holiness, to be holy and one finds this, therefore, experientially in the church. If there is an emphasis, perhaps, in Blondell, it is the move again away from abstract theological formulations to what he calls experience, and to see abstract theological formulations in a way an interpretation of experience, a way of trying to understand the concrete experience. Blondell, in some ways, harkens back to one of the great seminal thinkers of modern Catholicism, the 17th century Frenchman Blaise Pascal, who had been a mathematician, but was also a kind of a mystic. And Pascal, faced with the rise of the new science, moved away from arguing a strictly formal argument in favor of the existence of God, and instead himself going back to St. Augustine in the fourth century, talked of the natural longing which human beings have for God. The famous line in St. Augustine's Confessions, our hearts are restless and they shall find no rest until they rest in thee. Pascal pioneers in a way a new kind of apologetics or a new kind of theology on that basis in the 17th century, it did not give rise to what one might call a school. But in a way, what Blondell is doing here in the 1890s is reviving it. Blondell was very cool, or perhaps better to say, tended to ignore what is called philosophical realism. Philosophical realism, which comes down from Aristotle, in a way perhaps is simply philosophical common sense. It is the belief, which I suppose most people tend to have, that when you perceive something with your senses and with your mind, you're perceiving something which is really there and you are perceiving it pretty much as it is. Now we recognize that we are capable of being deceived, and we recognize that there are some people, perhaps, who are um, habitually 
deceived. They may be insane or they hallucinate. And we recognize, of course, that we never fully and completely comprehend something that we are looking at. But the realist position holds that fundamentally we can trust the senses, we can trust the intellect to give us a correct picture of the world and that the human mind is essentially a blank slate, a tabula rasa, which contains nothing until our perceptions have put something there. Now, as I said, that comes down to us from Aristotle. It is therefore adopted also by Thomas Aquinas. And insofar as Thomas Aquinas is designated as the preeminent theologian and philosopher of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church seemed to have, in a sense, committed itself to the realist position. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant, whom we mentioned in a previous lecture, had, of course, argued at the end of the 18th century that we never perceive things in and of themselves. We only perceive them as they present themselves to the mind. Such a fundamental thing, for example, as time and space where we find it impossible virtually to think of anything except in terms of time and space. Kant said those are simply categories which the mind itself has and whatever information it receives through the senses it tends to fit them into the categories of time and space. We have no basis for saying that time and space exist in and of themselves. And there are many other categories of that kind according to Kant. In the later 19th century, albeit for the most part independent of Catholic modernism, there was coming into being also a philosophical school that would be called phenomenology. And this school takes its name from Kant's use of the word phenomena, from the Greek, meaning again, beings as they present themselves to the mind, beings as we experience them, as we see them. We might take a very simple example here, which perhaps doesn't get quite to the heart of the issue. The well-known fact that has been experimented on over and over again, that if you suddenly there is a traffic accident at an intersection, and there may be six or seven people standing around, and when the witnesses are questioned, they come up with sometimes quite varying stories as to what they supposedly saw or the famous experiment where in a psychology class where a man runs into the room with a gun and threatens to kill people and one thing and another and then afterwards the students are asked to write down what they saw. The versions of the story which these various people would give us would be phenomena. That is to say they would be events as they presented themselves to the minds of the people who were recounting the story, not giving us a definitive picture of the reality which lies behind it. Now, phenomenology as a philosophical school points out that reality outside the mind never presents itself to us in a completely disinterested way. That quite often, for example, when we perceive something, it is tainted, if you will, by love, by desire, by hatred, by revulsion, fear, by hope, expectation, and instead of dismissing those things as irrelevant, the phenomenologist will say this enters into our perception of beings. And the phenomenologist, therefore, will get very interested in subjects which don't perhaps lend themselves readily 
to a rigorously logical analysis, for example, love uh, in its various manifestations. And they will try to describe the experience of love as it manifests itself in various ways and will say that one cannot rigorously analyze those. In a sense, it's, I think Blondell is perhaps a kind of a phenomenologist, albeit I don't think he ever called himself that, and I don't think he was probably familiar with the early work in phenomenology that was then going on. He lived until 1949, and to some extent perhaps his work then did begin to emerge with some of the phenomenologists. Uh, John Paul II is somewhat interested in phenomenology. The problem, from the point of view of Blondell's critics, was precisely, again, realism. The fear that if you say that what the mind presents to us is not a completely objective picture of reality, but it's merely reality as we experience it, then does everything collapse into pure subjectivity? And if everything collapses into pure subjectivity, then can we be certain of anything? Thomas Aquinas, with his famous five proofs for the existence of God, or five ways to know the existence of God, claiming that the existence of God is not a mere opinion, it's not a feeling, but it is something that is unavoidable if you're truly a thoughtful person. Blondell, intensely pious, certainly a very passionate belief in God, and yet open perhaps to the possibility of saying, well, that's fine for you, Blondell, that seems to be your experience, but it isn't mine. Now, Blondell's response to that would be to say, well, if you don't experience anything like this in your life, then your life has been truncated in some way or impoverished in some way. That it would be like someone not appreciating, say, the beauty of music or never having experienced love. Maybe that's true, but you would say that that person then in some respects is very deficient. And Blondell's idea is that the church is a holy community which, among other things, awakens and nourishes in people these urges towards the transcendent. Blondell thought of himself as proposing a middle road between what he called extrinsicism on the one hand and what he called historicism on the other. Extrinsicism, of course, from the word extrinsic, meaning something coming from the outside. And that was the way Blondell tended to view so much of official theology, especially, again, Thomistic theology, that we have here a set of doctrines. We have the creeds. We have the statements of belief. We may come to them, as a convert might, bewildered and uncertain as to what they mean, finding little or nothing in our own experience to relate them to, but we humbly submit ourselves to learning and to belief, and hence we make these things part of ourselves. This is what he calls extrinsicism. Historicism, on the other hand, is something which sees expressions of religion, this is sort of what Loisy was doing really, it sees expressions of religion 
as merely manifestations of a particular historical and cultural era. So that, in fact, the doctrines of the church, the creeds, etc., might well be and are, in fact, an expression of a lived faith, of a very vital faith, at the time they are formulated, but then, as it were, they go cold or they become dead, and for later generations they are merely historical curiosities. This, as I say, is in a sense what is Loisy's position. Blondel sees himself as having a middle position between the two, that the teachings of Christianity are not extrinsic in the sense that we simply accept something which is essentially rather strange to us and submit to it with humility, but that the teachings of Christianity properly understood reverberate with things in our experience that make them meaningful to us. It avoids historicism because Blondel believes that these urges of transcendence in the human person are perennial. They may be affected to some extent by the historical age in which we live, but if we could resonate just as legitimately to the Nicene Creed as did a Christian of the fourth century, if we simply cultivate our sensitivity and make ourselves sufficiently aware. As I have said, Blondel remains to this very day a person of some controversy. He himself believed that when the condemnation of modernism came out in 1907, it did not include him. And we'll say a little bit more about that when we talk about the condemnation. And to this day, he has both supporters and defenders who are themselves orthodox believers and who will say that he either is or is not himself orthodox. To my limited familiarity with it, it seems to me that, as is often the case, some of Blondell's formulations are rather ambiguous, and it depends, therefore, on how one understands them. In one sense, what Blondell's saying seems to be very good and very hopeful. There is this natural religious sense in human beings. We all have a natural understanding of God. We are naturally oriented towards transcendence. It would seem to rule out atheism, agnosticism, materialism, any number of other things which are inimical to faith. On the other hand, the nagging fear which some people have about Blondell is whether indeed he reduces it all down to some kind of subjectivity. And there have even been those who have objected that in Blondell's system it really doesn't matter whether God exists. What is important is that the human beings have a desire for God or that people believe there is a God and that there is the danger of reducing faith to simply people's perceptions. Blondell would say, but if you have millions and millions of people all having the same perception, which is the community of the church, then clearly this is not radical subjectivity, but that debate in that sense goes on. Now, in um, some respects, the key figure in the modernist movement is a man, Friedrich von Hugel, who is almost always referred to as the Baron von Hugel. Von Hugel, as his name indicates, was Germanic. He was actually born in Austria. His father was a diplomat. The family settled in England at a fairly early date, 
and von Hugel lived most of his life in England and uh, basically considered himself an Englishman. This is a bit of a problem, however, in that von Hugel, as has been said, wrote English like a German. And sometimes people have found his sentences and his ideas rather difficult to decipher. In some cases, people have felt as though they ran up against a blank wall in terms of what von Hugel was talking about. So he too remains controversial, as does Blondel. Now, it's also true that Blondel and Hugel, both being laymen, personally escaped ecclesiastical censure. When the condemnation of modernism came out in 1907, no names were mentioned. And one can believe or not believe that Hugel and Blondel were intended, but while specific penalties, suspension from the priesthood excommunication, were invoked against priests, little was ever done with regard to laymen. And so there never was an official statement as to whether Blondell or von Hugel could be considered uh, modernists. Von Hugel was a very learned man, and he too was very much taken with and to some extent bothered by modern biblical criticism. Probably his German background had made him familiar with the 19th century liberal tradition of biblical criticism. He feared that the modern biblical criticism was in fact pulling the rug out from under historical Catholicism by calling into question the historical roots of the faith. Whether the Gospels are indeed a historically accurate presentation of the life of Jesus on earth. And then if that were true, are we essentially forced to sort of abandon our faith, the historic faith, which is pretty much what the liberal Protestants had said. Von Hugel thought that the faith could be rescued in a sense along the lines that Blondell proposed, namely the fundamental sense of transcendence or of longing for a higher reality that von Hugel found in human nature. It is sometimes said that if someone is a truly devout believer and lives truly devoutly, that that individual cannot seriously stray from the faith. And von Hugel is an interesting test of that hypothesis because von Hugel was indeed quite devout. He was a daily communicant he had great devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, would spend an hour at a time in adoration, regularly said the rosary, was about as pious a layman as you could expect to find, and yet was accused by some of being unorthodox, of undermining the faith, and his case, like that of Blondell, remains to a certain extent ambiguous. Von Hugel defended Alfred Loisier for a long time, and only rather reluctantly, some years after Loisier had been excommunicated and had left the priesthood, and when some of the full implications of Loisier's 
skepticism were becoming apparent, did von Hugel somewhat reluctantly abandon him. Should this be viewed as a sort of misguided personal loyalty, as some would say, or does it indicate that von Hugel's own position was essentially a radical and skeptical one? One can again find people on both sides of that question. Von Hugel also viewed himself as what was called at the time an ultramontanist. Now, ultramontanism from the Latin meaning on the other side of the mountain. And the term was coined in the 19th century, especially in France, for those who were particularly loyal to the Pope and who looked to the other side of the mountains, therefore, for religious leadership and for religious authority. Hence, they were ultramontanists. And those of the opposite persuasion were sometimes called cisalpinists, meaning on this side of the Alps. And that meant Catholics who were Catholic, but at the same time were resistant to the idea of centralized papal authority. Well, von Hugel considered himself an ultramontanist. And this has always been a problem of interpretation. How does one reconcile his quasi-radicalism in theology and the fact that this all gets condemned by Pius X? How does one reconcile that with von Hugel's ultramontanism? which remains something of a mystery, just as it is a mystery to some extent how to reconcile it with his intense piety. For von Hugel, the key is sanctity. That what is crucial in the history of the church, what is in fact the living tradition of the church, is sanctity. Those who have achieved a heroic level of the Christian life, and whose example is so luminous and inspiring and even overpowering to others that they automatically attract admiration, awe, the desire to imitate them, and a profound and transforming insight into what it truly means to be a Christian. And von Hugel says that the history of the church is, of course, full of such people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And uh, in his mind, that is really what the tradition is all about. He believes that we do have to have a tradition. And he wanted as much as possible to emphasize continuity with the past, which makes his support for Loisy again somewhat mysterious, since Loisy was really doing just the opposite. And von Hugel thought that it was necessary also to have an institutional church, that spirituality could not simply be kind of free-floating in a very loose sort of community, but that it had to occur within an organized context. And this, again, is somewhat hard to reconcile with his support of Loisie. But, as I've said, many aspects of von Hugel remain a little bit mysterious. For von Hugel, the text of Scripture can be regarded as divine, even apart from the questions of who wrote the Gospels, when were they written, how historically reliable are they. Whereas for Wazi, 
Modern biblical criticism induces in him a skepticism. He can't ever really believe the teachings of the church again, having swallowed the skepticism of the biblical critics. Von Hugel appears to think that one can rise to a higher level in which one responds to the sacred texts directly as sacred documents, as profoundly spiritual documents, which stir the soul and lead us to a higher level of existence. And petty questions, as it were, of authorship and so on, really in a way don't matter. One can put those behind and move on rather quickly. I think that to Loisie and to some others, that position of von Hugel's was quite unsatisfactory. That to them, the whole question of the historicity of the Gospels was very important and had to be worked out in some fashion. And there was even perhaps a certain element of dishonesty as far as they were concerned in not wanting to wrestle with the question and as it were moving on to a higher plane. Von Hugel had dabbled, so to speak, in biblical criticism at a certain point. Then he put it aside, both because he said he really wasn't trained for it and because, again, he thought that it was possible to move the whole discussion to a higher level. For Von Hugel, what was particularly central and important was mysticism, and that this is perhaps the richest and most important aspect of the entire Catholic tradition. And von Hugel's best-known book, which was published in 1908, just a year after the condemnation of modernism, has the rather cumbersome title of The Mystical Element in Religion as exemplified in St. Catherine of Genoa and her friends. Catherine of Genoa is a relatively obscure late medieval mystic, and von Hugel spent a great deal of time studying her and some other mystics of that period. What is a mystic? Well, it's hard to define because one might almost define the word mystic as something which cannot be defined. It's obviously from the word mystery, therefore it is hidden, it is beyond human comprehension. What mysticism has meant in the history of Christianity has been those great souls who have apparently been taken out of themselves and have had, in some sense, a kind of a direct experience of God. Now, it should be clear what is meant here. If someone says, I was troubled, I was sorrowful, I was anxious, and I had the sense that God was with me, God was standing next to me and was guiding me, that isn't mysticism. Mysticism is something much more, if you will, exotic than that and much more powerful than that, in which the mystics speak of losing their sense of their own identity, forgetting who they are, being so absorbed into God as to forget everything else, simply having a crushing and overpowering experience of the greatness of God, something which we acknowledge intellectually but most of the time does not impose itself on us, they speak of God in terms of the experience of fire, often, and the experience of intense and blinding light. And there's a long tradition of this in the church, which seems to go back all the way to St. Paul. And to von Hugel, 
this is the highest level of the Christian life, and it is what, in fact, validates the Christian life. If you want to uh, demonstrate that Christianity is true and valid in the right way, then point to the mystics who have achieved a level of spiritual development without parallel, which no one else has ever achieved. And of course, if one believes, as was quite reasonable to believe at the end of the 19th century, that the greatest dangers to the faith were things like atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, materialism, then mysticism is almost the precise opposite of all those things. Mysticism rising above this life, exalting the spiritual realm far above the material realm, and saying that the existence of God is not something we simply that we believe in, but it is something which we are capable of experiencing in a very powerful and direct way. And one might then say again that those people who have no inkling of this or those people that are, have their feet securely planted on the ground have got a deficiency of their own, which the mystics overcome. The reservations which people have often had, Orthodox Catholics have often had, to the thought of von Hugel are very similar to the reservations that one might have towards the thought of Maurice Blondel. Namely, he certainly describes something which is powerful and which is to be admired and respected, but is it open to the possibility of turning religion into a purely subjective experience? In which someone says, well, I guess there is such a thing as mystical experience, and some have it and some don't, but I've never had it myself, and frankly, I don't even really understand what it is, and who knows but that mystical experience isn't in fact some kind of psychopathology, and therefore it really says nothing about the truth of Christianity. It merely tells us about the state of the soul of the believer. And the very fact that von Hugel thought that he transcended the question of the historicity of the Gospels was to many people troublesome because if we concede the possibility that the Gospels are unreliable as an account of the life of Jesus, then our faith does become essentially subjective. We do not put our faith in an actual historical figure, the incarnate Son of God. We put our faith in some image or vision or whatever it may be. I think that von Hugel, given his deep piety and his deep loyalty to the church, genuinely believed that he was solving many of our problems and that he was putting faith on a stronger and more solid basis, that it was possible to avoid many of the difficulties which other people found very, very troublesome. But on the other hand, it isn't clear that he succeeded in doing so. Von Hugel, as I started to say earlier, was in some ways the key figure in the movement because he functioned as a kind of communications intermediary. He carried on a tremendous correspondence. He put different modernists in different places in touch with one another. He kept people informed of what was going on, and he was friends with many of them. 
and was in some respects maybe the cement which held it all together. I would say that in many respects von Hugel appears to be the most attractive personality of all the modernists. I'm not sure that one would want to spend much time in the company of Loisy or Tyrell, for example, but von Hugel appears to have been a genuinely likable person and a very good person. The next figure that we will mention, although not at any great length, is a uh, French priest, Lucien La Barthonniere. La Barthonniere belonged to the religious order called the Oratorians. The order to which Cardinal Newman belonged, and the order which had been founded at the time of the Counter-Reformation by St. Philip Neri. La Barthonniere has a number of affinities, I think, with Maurice Blondel. He is roughly a contemporary, a bit older. It's possible, although it isn't certain, that Le Barthonnier was influenced to some degree by American pragmatism, the, the philosophy of pragmatism, which we'll talk about more somewhat later, and I'll explain in a moment what I mean by that. Le Barthonnier argued that the dogmas or the doctrines of the church were to be understood concretely, and they were to be understood as guides to conduct or guides to behavior. Recall that Blondel was opposed to what he called extrinsicism, which would mean, let's say, that you take the catechism, the old-fashioned catechism, and you start looking at all the doctrines that are laid forth there, all the beliefs of the church. And you memorize it, and you say, well, yes, I believe this. You give your assent, but what does it all really mean? It's not very clear. Extrinsicism, Blondel says, is bad. Le Barthonnier agrees, but he thinks that the doctrines of the church are not intended to be understood as abstract statements of belief, but they are intended, as they say, as guides to conduct. Now, he doesn't mean that in a rather crude way, as, for example, those people who will say, well, the only thing that's important that you know about Christianity is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus lays down the rules for good behavior, and, and as long as you follow that, nothing else matters. Well, there's an awful lot of other things in the gospel besides the Sermon on the Mount, and so you're missing a good deal of the story if you leave those out. But Le Barthonnier said, for example, we define the Trinity, three persons in one God. Now, clearly the human mind is incapable of understanding that, and it's hard, therefore, somehow to make it a part of you. I think priests often have problems on Trinity Sunday, and I've heard them say this, how can I preach on such a deep mystery and make it meaningful to people? Le Barthonnier says, the doctrine of the Trinity, three persons in one God, means that we should live as though God were a person. That is to say, we should pray to God, we should attempt to have a personal relationship with God, we should think that God loves us, and so forth. And he says, the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the bread and wine of the Eucharist become the body and blood of Christ, means that we must live as though Jesus were not dead, that Jesus is still alive and Jesus is still with us. So these are the sort of things that Le Barthonnier does as a way of, in a sense, saving traditional doctrines. Now, I think that one could certainly say 
that uh, he was onto something, that abstract doctrines are not supposed to be just abstract, they are supposed to have meaning. And if one goes back again to the great theologians and the great fathers of the church in particular, one will find that they could take what we may think of as abstract doctrines and make them very vital and living and relevant in the lives of their hearers. Maybe by the late 19th century, that ability was being lost to some extent. And so Le Barthonier, I think, had a legitimate interest here. The problem, again, from the point of view of church authorities, was the suspicion that he was glossing over the question of whether any of this was true. Was any of it true? Could these just simply be viewed as interesting ideas which we can set up and use as guides to our behavior? Of myths, really, fictional stories which we find to some degree or another inspiring? That was the crucial question as far as Le Barthonier's critics were concerned. He was very hostile to the theology of Thomas Aquinas, the theology and philosophy of Thomas Aquinas as things, again, which were much too abstract. And he believed that the emphasis on Aquinas had done enormous harm. Now, Le Barthonier was never excommunicated or suspended from the priesthood, but his books were placed on the index of forbidden books. A Jesuit, also a Frenchman by the name of Henri Bremond, who became a close friend of Tyrrell and actually went to uh, England when Tyrrell died in 1909 and got into trouble by conducting a little funeral service at Tyrrell's grave. It was not an actual Catholic funeral, but since Tyrrell had died excommunicated, Bremond's action was improper. He had been a Jesuit, as I said, but he left the Jesuits at around the same time that Tyrrell did. And he was a strong supporter of the modernists. But he continues to function as a Catholic priest. He lives on for a number of years. He's not a crucial figure in modernism, albeit he's very prominent there at that brief period around the turn of the century. But Bramond is an interesting person because of what he did do with his life. He devoted himself to writing a multi-volume history of French spirituality, which was a very rich, especially in the 17th century. Francis de Sales, Vincent de Paul, Jane Francis de Chantal, Pascal, and others. Spirituality, which of course is in a way the way in which believers relate personally to God, how the divine mysteries are rooted in their own lives and affect their own lives. I think looked to Bremond as perhaps an escape from all of this. Don't worry about dogma. Don't worry about the historicity of the Bible. He did not wish to be, as it were, a martyr, as Loisie and Terrell had been. He sort of is tacitly working along the same lines as von Hugel. It is the great saints, the great spiritual teachers who truly embody the faith as far as we are concerned. If you concentrate on that, you can ignore pretty much all the rest. And no one can criticize you because most of these people, in fact, are recognized saints. And spirituality is recognized as essential to the Catholic life. 
And Brahman, in a sense, you might say, begins a tradition which still manifests itself from time to time of people who emphasize spirituality as a way of avoiding, in a way, perhaps some of the more difficult intellectual questions. There's a French Dominican named Jean-Marie Lagrange, who is the leading Catholic biblical scholar of that age. People like Loisy, Terrell, Hugel, etc., were somewhat dabbled in it, but weren't really that knowledgeable in it. But Lagrange was someone who did know the ancient biblical languages and was adequately trained. Lagrange was the man who essentially founded in Jerusalem in the early 20th century, the Ecole Biblique, the biblical school, which exists to the present time as one of the two leading centers of Catholic biblical scholarship in the world, the other one being in Rome. Lagrange was sometimes in trouble for some of his writings, but for the most part, you might say, managed to stay out of trouble. Leo XIII in 1894 had issued an encyclical called Providentissimus Deus, the most provident God, in which he had actually, in a somewhat cautious way, encouraged biblical scholarship. And in 1903, the year of his death, Leo XIII set up the Pontifical Biblical Commission for the purpose of reviewing biblical scholarship. And the church was not absolutely condemnatory of all biblical scholarship. Leo XIII said that legitimate scholarship, responsible scholarship, was to be respected and encouraged. The church has nothing to fear from truth. Lagrange was regarded by some of the modernists as being kind of a turncoat because he had expressed agreement with some of the more radical biblical theories, then he seemed to move away from that. And he too, therefore, remained something of an ambiguous figure in the whole thing, but someone whose existence should be noted. Another French priest scholar by the name of Jean Duchesne, a noted historian, and who had been again a friend of Loisie, a mentor of Loisie to some extent, someone who saw that the same questions of historical accuracy that were being asked about the Gospels could also be asked about church history. And how many, for example, of the legends of the saints, or how many of the medieval chronicles of church life and so forth were to be taken at face value? How many were to be thought of as truly historically reliable? This was seen to have significant implications, of course, for the whole idea of tradition. Because if the church rests upon tradition, that is to say a continuous history coming down to us from apostolic times, if we claim that good chunks of that history are not reliable, then where does that leave us? So it seemed as though Duchenne was attacking on yet another front. Duchenne actually provoked a good deal of animosity on an issue where I think we can clearly see that his critics were wrong and where there was often sometimes overreaction. He debunked the idea that certain dioceses in France had actually been founded in apostolic times. He was able to show that the first evidence of the existence of a bishopric in certain French towns was considerably later, and that the story of apostolic origins did not arise until later. These were by, in by no means crucial to the faith, 
but it made him a controversial figure. He too really managed for the most part to stay out of trouble and was accused by people like Lazie of being kind of a turncoat. There's one woman with some association here with the modernist, an English woman by the name of Maud Petrie, who belonged to an obscure religious order of nuns which seemed to be way ahead of their time. They didn't wear habits, they didn't live in community. They were kind of like secular institute. She became a good friend and admirer of Terrell. She encouraged Terrell. She did a little bit of writing of her own. She was a member of the modernist circle, albeit she is not an original mind or considered to be one of the more significant thinkers in the movement. But her presence there does deserve to be noted. When the modernists are condemned, they will say, the Pope has attributed to us a unity of viewpoint which doesn't exist. He's lumped us all together in one pot, and we don't all necessarily agree with one another. And to some extent that was true, but I think to some extent also there were common threads that ran through what each of the modernists believed. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.